Good morning. <laughs> well, we always like to open our Sundays by first saying a welcome to anybody that is joining us here for the first time in our room, or if you're joining us online. Uh, we're so glad to hear you're here to worship with us. So welcome to Hosanna. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we are going to be continuing our study through the book of Revelation, looking at the beast from the land, or the beast from the earth, seen in Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. We will also be taking communion today, as it is the first Sunday of the month, so if you did not get your communion cup as you entered the room today, um, just raise your hand right now and hold it up until the elders get to you. If you did get your communion cup today, don't raise your hand. We got you covered. And then I'm going to go ahead and continue on with our intro here. But again, we are looking at the beast from the land who is also known as the false prophet. We're also going to be looking at the work that he does during the tribulation period to point to or to enforce worship of the Antichrist. But I wanted to read to you guys a quote, and I want you to think about where this quote may have come from. It goes like this. The streets of our country are in turmoil. The universities are filled with students rebelling and rioting. The country is in danger. Yes, danger from within and without. We need law and order. Without law and order, our nation cannot survive. Now, as you're thinking about that, you might be thinking, well, who said that? Pretty powerful words, right? Um, for some of us, especially here in our country, we might hear a lot of truth to those words, and we might think, you know, maybe someone like a presidential candidate said that, or a concerned citizen. You guys have any guess as to who said these words? 1932, Adolf Hitler said those words before his rise to power in Germany. You know, dictators rarely take over by force. Almost always, they start by engaging in peaceful endeavors during times of turmoil, during times of difficulty and tribulation. And often throughout history, when someone comes along who solves the catastrophic societal problems that can happen on a national scale or even a global scale, people will tend to lift up such an individual in veneration. They will even go so far as to make statues and images of such a leader so they can direct their honor and allegiance to them. You know, back during the Roman Empire, the emperors of the empire came to be worshipped as gods. As Rome was conquering many other nations and expanding the empire, these nations that they conquered became indebted to Rome. They became indebted to Rome, um, and, and they were very thankful for the law and the order and the stability that Rome brought to nations that had been ruled locally by petty tyrants for a long time. And so the Roman rule that, that came over them was considered a privilege by many at the time. Many of those nations would thank Rome for what was called Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. So grateful for the stability that they brought in. So grateful that they came in and fixed the problems and solved the issues that people were having. In Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, the people were so thankful, and the thankfulness was so enthusiastic, that in Asia Minor, they actually started to worship the Roman Empire as an entity. They worshipped it and lifted it up to deity, but because it's difficult to worship something abstract like a governmental entity, they actually created the goddess of Rome, 
a god named Roma that represented the whole empire so that they can direct their worship to a persona. Unfortunately, that didn't really catch on substantially, and what they found that it was much more successful to worship the Roman emperors who were representatives, leaders of this empire. And as we read back in chapter two of Revelation in the city of Pergamos, there was actually a whole temple to the Caesars built there, and a statue, ruins of which you can still see today, a statue to the Caesars that were a place where the the worship of Rome and the Roman emperors was focused. Now interesting, as I was preparing for this, I found out that initially, the Roman emperors didn't like to be worshiped as gods. In fact, it was the Roman Senate that convinced the Roman emperors that the people worshiping them as gods was a good thing because it was a unifying thing for the empire. Because after all, Rome was becoming this multilingual, this multicultural melting pot of peoples and cultures as the empire was expanding. And what a way to unify the empire under the Roman rule and the Roman thought and the Roman way than to have them worship its leader as a god. So by AD 100, it was mandatory throughout the entire empire to worship Caesar as God. And this was accomplished and enforced by imperial cult religious leaders, false prophets, if you will, who would stand in front of the, Caesar, the statues to the Caesars in all the towns where everyone was required to come and declare out loud that Caesar is Lord. Now, you might be thinking, I came to church. Why are we having a history lesson, right? Well, the reason is because history is doomed to repeat itself. What happened in Rome has repeated itself in microcosm from then all the way up until our modern area in different places, and it will happen again one last major time during the tribulation. This morning, we're going to look at the Antichrist's sidekick, the false prophet, who he is, how John sees him in this vision, and how he works. But before we get into all of that, We're going to pray. We're going to spend some time worshiping God because he is God. He is almighty. He is worth our worship. He is worthy of our worship. He is our savior, and we love him. Amen? Let's pray. God, we're so thankful, Lord, for your work in our lives. We're so grateful for the salvation you've given us, Lord. God, we're so thankful for the Holy Spirit who lives in the world today within us, the believers. God, we know that as you were here on earth for three years, Lord, you were here physically just, just showing us who the Father was. But God, Jesus, you, you, you died on the cross and then you rose again on the third day, Lord. And then you ascended to heaven and now it's the Holy Spirit who is with us here today, ministering in us, working in and through us, God, but pointing us to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so God, we're so grateful for all you've done We're grateful for how you work, and we're grateful, Lord, for the truth and the clarity you bring into our lives through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We know it's because of your death on the cross, God, that everything changed. Salvation, forgiveness, grace, mercy, it's all possible through you, and we're so grateful for that. But Lord, today as we study and look at this this counterfeit to the Holy Spirit, Lord, this one who wants to point to the Antichrist and demand that people worship him, God, that again, we would learn the devices of the devil, the tools and the schemes and how he works, Lord. That we would be wise, we would be um, people with eyes wide open to how the devil works. Because Lord, even today he works to confuse and deceive people to get them to worship everything but Jesus Christ. So Lord, encourage us, speak to us, teach us. Lord, we even invite you to rebuke us if that's what we need today. 
so that, God, we would become more like you, to be representatives of you in this world, to shine the light of the gospel to those that don't yet know you. We love you so much. We worship you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in Revelation 13, verses, eight, or verses 11 through 18. And these verses say, they show us that the Antichrist is not alone in his work, but he has an accomplice. He has a sidekick who helps in his rise to power. Although the Antichrist is a very powerful, influential political leader, he will need the help of a powerful religious leader in his domination of earth, specifically as part of and through the middle of tribulation, which is where the abomination of desolation takes place, that moment where the Antichrist goes from being a peaceful governmental leader to sitting into the temple demanding worship of himself as God. So what we're going to see today is five characteristics of this religious leader known as the false prophet seen in the verses we're looking at. And the first characteristic is his authoritative position. Read with me in Revelation 13 verse 11. John says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. So, at this point in Revelation 13, John has already seen a beast coming up out of the sea in this really strange and interesting vision that he is observing. But here, John says, I saw another beast beast. That's a very specific word in the Greek. In the Greek, it's the word alos. It means another of the same kind. Not necessarily a carbon copy or a duplicate, but one with the same nature or the same um, characteristics, meaning that this second beast that John sees here is also a deceiving, monstrous, wicked, evil creature, just like the first. However, there are differences. You'll notice he says he saw this beast coming up out of the earth. The first beast came up out of the sea. Now again, because this is all a great symbolic display, all of these things have symbolic meaning. And so you might ask, well, if the sea that we looked at earlier in Revelation was a picture of the sea of humanity, what is the earth here? Well, there's a couple different ideas um, because the word earth we see in the CSB is translated the land in other translations. I believe in the New King James it says that he saw this beast coming up out of the land. Now that word earth in the original Greek is a word that can refer to the actual land, right? Like the ground. It's a word that can refer to a group of people. It's also a word that could refer to a region or a country. So there's some different ideas on what this means symbolically. It could simply be another way to refer to the whole of humanity, right? We saw earlier in Revelation um, pictures of an angel having his foot set on both sea and land, and it was a picture of the totality of the creation there. But there are some who interpret this because of the interpretation of this word earth as the land, they see that as a reference to the land of Israel, and so they see that this beast, this false prophet, um, could be a Jewish individual from the nation of Israel who was apostate and working with the Antichrist. Um, I believe it could go either way. We're not exactly sure. But as he sees this beast coming up out of the earth, the first thing he notices is that it has two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. And this is where this beast 
differs from the first beast. It has the same authority of the first beast, the same desire to deceive, right? The same monstrous nature, right? Another of the same kind. But the first beast, his characteristics, as if you, uh, if you remember there, was that he was this monstrous, grotesque creature with seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns. And those crowns were speaking to his political authority as we looked at him being not only the beast representing the Antichrist as his governmental leader, but also this worldwide government that will then uh, take control in the end times. The second beast, however, it has characteristics of a lamb. A cute little lamb, right? Horns like a lamb. If you look up a picture of a little lamb, you'll see that it has these cute little nubby nubs right there on its head. And you're like, oh, how adorable, how gentle, how kind looking. Um, No crowns. It doesn't have political authority, but it still has horns. And if you remember, horns biblically, um, symbolically speak of strength and authority. And so this lamb here has an authority, but it's a different type of authority than the first beast. It's not a political authority, it's a spiritual authority, as we will see in his work in the subsequent verses. But his authority is not aggressive or domineering per se like the first beast, it's subtle, it's crafty, it's almost gentle, like a little lamb. Now, so when you see this picture of the horns of the lamb, it's this idea of when this person comes on the scene, the world's gonna be like, oh, how cute. That can't possibly be harmful. But then, as you may have seen in cartoons before where the little lamb opens his mouth and roar, sharp teeth and speaking like a dragon, right? That idea of speaking like a dragon means that as this almost innocent, gentle uh, person comes on the scene, when he talks, he's still speaking the words of hell. Fearful words, words of damnation, deceptive lies, words that are harmful while sounding helpful. And this is very similar to the image that Jesus described false prophets as. If you remember, Jesus said false prophets are wolves in sheep's clothing. So it's that picture of this gentle outside, but there's still this horrific danger underneath. Now in Revelation 16, 13, we see a picture of this beast working alongside the first beast and with the dragon. That's in Revelation 16, 13, where it says, Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. And that's where we get the the title for this second beast as the false prophet. Now the word prophet refers to one who speaks the mind of God, speaks the truths of God. That's what a prophet is. And that's exactly what this person claims to do. But he's false. And so is the God that he speaks of and points to. And so when he speaks the words of a dragon, he's literally speaking the words of the dragon, Satan himself. This individual is also called the false prophet in Revelation 19.20 and Revelation 20.10, there where we see the picture of his defeat as Jesus Christ defeats him and the Antichrist and Satan. But again, this paints a picture we've referenced a couple times in our study of Revelation that's very interesting. Revelation 12, you have this dragon, this seven-headed dragon that it tells us very plainly there represents Satan. 
And then in Revelation 13, we see this beast coming up out of the sea representing the Antichrist, this political ruler who, who came in peaceful and then was apparently fatally wounded and then that wound was miraculously healed and he came back demanding to be worshiped as God. And then we see this beast out of the land or out of the earth, which is the false prophet, this religious ruler who is gonna point everybody back to the Antichrist. And this is the counterfeit trinity. This is a mockery of the Trinity, the Godhead that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Biblically, we know that Jesus always pointed to the Father, right? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What I find very interesting is that the first time Jesus came on the scene, the Jewish people wanted him to be a political leader. They wanted him to overthrow the government of Rome and take over and set up the Messianic kingdom. But that's what, not what he was there for the first time. So the Antichrist, in mockery of this, points to the dragon. He points to Satan. And then as the Holy Spirit points to Jesus, the false prophet points the world to the Antichrist. The false prophet is going to say, worship him, worship him, just as the Holy Spirit does towards Jesus today. And that is the authoritative position that this beast from the earth has in Revelation. Verse 12, we see the second characteristic of this individual, his, his system of false worship. It says in verse 12 of Revelation 13, it exercises all the authority of the first beef beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So there's no ambiguity on who the first beast is, right? It's the one we just talked about, the one who had the fatal wound that was healed. So this second beast, he heads up a universal worship system to really enforce the lies and the deceptions. Verse 14, it specifically tells us that this second beast deceives those who live on the earth. Now, that is really the entire MO of the devil and all of his lackeys, deception. That, that's his entire uh, 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 plan. That's his entire tactic. He's a liar. Jesus told us that the devil is the father of lies. He's told lies from the very beginning. He tells lies about our origin. He tells lies about our future, lies about ourselves, lies about God, lies about our needs, the need for salvation. He just lies. And he loves to tell us, you know, you're, you're, you're good. <laughs> you're fine. You, you don't need to come to Christ. You, you, you don't need um, him. There, there, there are many ways. If, you're, if you want to be spiritual, there's many ways to heaven. Just pick one. And, and he just lies and lies. And scripture tells us that as time marches forward and the end comes closer and closer, that there's going to be more and more false prophets and false Christs. As we get closer to the end times, there's going to be more and more people coming on the scene that say, I speak for God uh, not the one of your Christianity, but, but this other one. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, verses four and five, he said, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. And then in Matthew 24, 11, he said, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And so this was predicted. This is happening. This will continue to happen, and it will culminate in the ultimate false Christ, the Antichrist, and the ultimate false prophet, this beast from the earth. 
Now, we touched on this last week with the Antichrist and some of how he goes about doing what he does, and it's through words, his persuasive speech. You know, words are very, very powerful. And speaking is one of the main tools of the Antichrist and this false prophet. The first beast, it told us earlier in Revelation 13, was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies against God, his name, his dwelling, the people who live there. And he was given authority to do this for 42 months, which is the the last three and a half years of tribulation. The second beast, it then tells us, speaks like a dragon, while saying he exercises all of the authority of the first beast on his behalf. So he is like a a forerunner, if you will, a herald pointing back to the Antichrist. And so the first and second beast, they're really like an oratory tag team, right? They're working together to blaspheme the real God and then to say, worship this false God instead. That is the work that they have as they're um, going about the world. Now, Nathaniel Hawthorne said this, words so innocent and powerful as they are standing in a dictionary, how potent for good and evil they become in the hands of one who knows how to combine them. And the false prophet, he's going to be an expert in combining words together to sway the people on the earth. Right? If you notice back there in verse 12, it says he compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the beast. That word compel means to to create a state in being in somebody, to force a state of being in someone else. What that tells us is is he's going to bring together all of the world's religions under one one world religion. He's going to bring together apostate Christianity, which I think involves progressive Christianity and all these weird wacko offshoots. He's going to bring together dead Catholicism. He's going to bring together dead Protestantism. He's going to bring together the adherents of Islam, people who are adherents of of Hinduism. He's even going to bring those that are under traditional Judaism that reject the Messiah, uh, reject Jesus as Messiah, and he's going to bring them all together. He's going to bring them together under one banner, breaking all of the barriers between them somehow, somehow through his speaking to, to compel, to bring these people together and unite them under one universal worship system. So as as much as the political governmental system will require a strong figure to unite all these nations and to unite the world under this, this governmental banner, so will the religious systems of the world require this false prophet, this powerful religious leader, and the false prophet fits the bill perfectly. And he's gonna rally the world and the world will indeed rally under his one world religion. And then again, in case you think it's a bit far-fetched to think that our secular world is suddenly on a global scale going to get religious and want to worship this guy, you have to consider that during the tribulation period, people will be looking for a deliverer. As we've studied, there will be so many catastrophes, so many global disasters that have struck the earth in this short period of time. They will be open to anybody coming along to save the day. They will be open to answers even uh, such that they've never even entertained that maybe there is a God who can save us and to to stop all this. And so when the Antichrist rises, he's going to solve so many problems and bring apparent peace and and ease so many of the fears, but then he's going to do the unthinkable and claim to be God 
and the greatest false prophet ever, possibly the greatest speaker ever, will speak, and he will mold minds and persuade thoughts with skill and with gifting, and he'll say things, well, isn't he God? Look at what he's done. Look at all the impossible things he's accomplished just in three and a half years. This individual has to be divine. He has to be God. And then, I mean, come on. You guys saw him killed, and he rose from the dead. His wound was healed. You should all worship him. Verse 13, we get to the third characteristic of this man, his attesting signs. It says, it also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast. So the false prophet doesn't just speak. He is a great speaker, but he does great things. It says here he performs great signs. And again, Consider the state of earth during the tribulation. Consider the state of mind that the people on the earth are experiencing during tribulation. We've already looked at the the first seven uh, seals. We've looked at the first um, seven um, trumpet judgments, right? As all these disasters have fallen upon the earth. It's been catastrophe after catastrophe falling upon the earth. Disaster after disaster. And all in a period of a few years. Can you imagine? Like we have a little bit of rain here in California and it is DEFCON 1, right? People were already buying up all the toilet paper and it's like, it's just raining a little bit, people. But imagine like when, I mean, it's, it's gonna, there's gonna be violent global earthquakes, celestial happenings, right? The sun going dark, the moon going red. How do you explain that? There's gonna be asteroids falling, bloody hail and fire falling upon the earth from the skies, volcanic eruptions. By this point in tribulation, one-third of the trees have been destroyed, all the grass is burned up, one-third of the oceans and the sea creatures and the ships on the oceans are destroyed, one-third of the fresh water sources, the rivers are gone, the sun's illumination had been diminished, and then on top of that, you had these weird locust-like creatures swarm the earth, stinging people, causing pain to such a degree people would want to die, but they couldn't. And then after that, there's this demonically led army that goes across the earth and kills one-third of mankind. All in a few years, people will be desperate, crying out for some meaning, for some purpose, for some hope in the midst of all of this tragedy. And the false prophet, wow, He will dazzle people with his apparent miraculous ability. He will dazzle the masses and all those people who have ever said, you know what, I need to see a miracle before I'll believe in the supernatural. Well, here's the guy. Here's the guy. Now, he says it performs great signs, and then it specifically says, even causing fire to come down from heaven. It's interesting. Why point that out? That's a very specific detail. And I think this is why. If you go back through scripture and you look at the, the different stories of God showing himself powerful on the earth, you might think of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, how did he do it? Fire from the heavens. 
In Elijah's story, there was a time where Elijah was surrounded by the ambassadors from a king who came to arrest him, and it tells us that fire came from heaven three times. And, and, and so people who had grown up reading the Bible or knew the Bible or heard these stories, they're, they're going to remember these things, these stories about how God demonstrated his, his reality through, through fire from heaven was how his judgments came. And then on top of that, you have these two witnesses that we read about who had been on earth at this point for three and a half years, the first three and a half years of tribulation, preaching Jesus Christ. And if you remember, it said in Revelation 11:5. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. So, so here's these two guys that are saying, we represent God, we're preaching Jesus Christ, and people are like, shut up, we're going to kill you, and, and people die. And people are like, whoa. So you have fire from heaven, you have fire even from the mouths of his servants, all of this already known to be some type of authenticating sign of God's power. But at the midpoint of tribulation, God allowed those two witnesses to be killed by the Antichrist. And so here the false prophet performs a very specific sign, a sign that is meant to indicate that his power is from God. Now, not, not, not the God of those two witnesses, no, my guy, my God. The Antichrist, the one I'm telling you to worship. Not the God who judged Sodom, not the God who protected Elijah, but, but this beast, this guy, worship him. And how do you know that I'm credible? Well, look at the miracles I'm performing. Now, verse 14, it says, it is permitted to perform signs. This is, um, has the same possible meanings that we discussed when we looked at the fatal wound of the first beast, right? Um, there's, there's a few different interpretations of what it means that he was permitted. Uh, it could be that God is allowing the false prophet to perform actual real miracles. Now, some go, well, no, God wouldn't do that. Why would he empower a deceiver to deceive? And, you know, the, the rebuttal to that is, well, we have the story of Pharaoh in the Old Testament where Pharaoh refused to believe God, and it says God hardened his heart. So the idea was, is when people say, I don't want to believe the truth, I want to believe the lie, we see this picture where God said, okay, I'm going to not only let you do that, but you want it so bad, I'm going to enforce it in a sense. And so in that way, God may be allowing the false prophet to perform these miracles. It could be an indicator that Satan himself has the, the ability to engineer miracles of some sort. But then again, some people say, well, if Satan can engineer miracles, why isn't he doing it all the time, Right? Why isn't he doing it all the time to wow people? And then again, um, there's the idea that, well, maybe God is permitting him to do so only at certain times for specific reasons according to God's plan. That's one of the ideas. And then the third idea is that he was permitted to perform signs is just simply the idea that he was um, manifesting fake miracles, some fabricated miracle, something that looked like a miracle, but that wasn't. Um, I'm not sure exactly, you know, it could be, could be one of those, but the idea is that these signs were performed, and they wowed the people, and it says these signs were, were deceptive. What was deceptive about these signs was the message that they were pointing to, so it's not so much how he performed them, it was what these signs were, were communicating, right? That word sign simply means miracles, and a miracle is a marvelous event that manifests as a supernatural act 
of a divine agent. But it's interesting, the, the definition of this word in the Greek says, a miraculous event that manifests as a supernatural act of a divine agent, often with an emphasis on communicating a message. So it's not just a miracle for the sake of a miracle. We might call that a magic trick. But it's something meant to communicate a message. And so what we see through this is that the, the world is indeed on schedule. Earth is on schedule to be deceived by miracles and signs and wonders that either don't come from or don't speak towards the truth of God, but instead speak towards the counterfeit Jesus, the Antichrist, and his false father, Satan. And sadly, those who refuse the truth of God and therefore want to be deceived will be. That's what we're seeing here. The fourth characteristic of this false prophet is, is his toys, his animated statue. Look in verse 14 again. It goes on to say, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now that word image there in the original language, it means a statue or a likeness. Now that's a fairly broad range of possibilities, okay? Um, but it says that the beast told those who lived on the earth to build this. That word telling that it has there, it means he ordered them or commanded them to. Just in the same way where he compelled them to worship the beast, he is now ordering them to make an image of this beast. And you might go, well, why? Well, as we've been seeing, the people of the earth have dedicated their allegiance to the Antichrist by this point. They are worshiping him and following him, and it already told us that the false prophet exercises all the authority of the Antichrist on his behalf. So he has the authority to order and command people, and he likely does it on pain of death. Now, this whole idea of, of ordering a statue to be built for worship, there's precedent for this in the Bible. Back in Daniel chapter 2, which we've referenced a couple times here already um, in, in our study of Revelation, we read the story of King Nebuchadnezzar having a dream about a statue, and Daniel comes and interprets this dream for him, and basically the gist of the dream is like, look, you're the head of a world empire, but it will be toppled and replaced with other world empires as history goes on. Well, the following chapter in Daniel, we see what Nebuchadnezzar does with that information. He says, uh-uh. And so in defiance of that dream and defiance of what Daniel told him he meant, it meant, he goes on to build a 90-foot tall gold statue. He has people build this statue, and he demands by law that everybody in Babylon bow down and worship the statue. Now, a lot of you may be familiar with that story because that's where we read about three Jewish uh, uh, youths named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow and worship the statue because loyalty and worship was for God alone, right? We don't have time to get into their story, but there is precedent for world leaders having statues built, images, likenesses of them built, and demanding that people worship it as a way to be worship of them. So it's a statue or likeness, but it's, it's animated somehow, right? He says it's given breath so that it could speak and cause those who don't worship to be killed. That word breath is the word pneuma. It's a word in the Greek that means wind, breathing. 
It also can mean spirit or that which animates or gives life. So it's a very broad word to apply here. And so, you know, we, we've all seen <laughs> animatronics in our world, right? Some of we have, have seen the, the, the demonic, beastly uh, creations at Chuck E. Cheese that are horrifying. We, we've seen those things, right? Um, or what used to be the Bear Jamboree at Disneyland. You know, terrifying things, right? Um, but they're, they're actually animated statues, right? And incidentally, they're animated by things called pneumatics, which comes from this word pneuma, right? It's air control. But then in our modern world, we know that technology has brought a deceased Michael Jackson and a deceased Tupac back to perform on stage as holograms. We see that as likenesses of people. One of the conversations today is, what is this image of the beast going to be? Is it going to be AI? Right? That's a popular conversation right now. Um, which is interesting because just recently in Geneva, there were nine AI-controlled robots that were fielding questions from a room full of reporters, and they were f answering these questions on the fly. It was AI. And it was really kind of creepy because you had two robots disagreeing with each other over the questions that these uh, reporters were answering them. And then, of course, there was in the past this story, I believe it was Google working on their own AIs, and they actually created two AIs to talk to each other. And then those AIs rapidly invented a language that the programmers couldn't understand. They were like, what are they talking about? And they pulled the plug, right? And then, of course, you know, many of us are familiar with the movie Terminator, where the AI becomes sentient and launches the nukes and wipes out humanity, <laughs> which is interesting because it says the image here could cause whoever does not worship the beast to be killed. So um, we don't know. We don't know what the image of the beast is, but it's going to be something that is convincing, something believable, something that is um, considered lifelike, something that has access to be able to cause people to be killed who don't worship it. Nobody knows for sure. Um, it's really all guessing, and so we don't know exactly what it is. And every generation in the church has, has tried to identify this. You know, same thing with the mark of the beast, right? Every time new technology comes out, there's someone going, ah, that's it. You know, it was barcodes. Then it was the strips on the back of credit cards. Well, it's, it's the internet. Today, it's AI. Um, we don't know. Like I said, Chuck E. Cheese is pretty demonic, so maybe it's going to be one of those statues. Um, no, not slamming Chuck E. Cheese for those who like Chuck E. Cheese, but the idea is that it, 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 it could even be something that hasn't been invented yet, some technology we don't understand. But the point is, is that the false prophet made an idol. That's the point. He made an idol. An idol is an image used as an object of worship, and people are forced to worship it, and that worship is enforced through threat of death, just like King Nebuchadnezzar and his statue, just like the statues of the Roman empires during the Roman Empire. Um, and this is incidentally something that is forbidden in scripture, right? First John 5:21, little children, guard yourself from idols. And then one of the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse four, it says, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters underneath the earth. Do not bow in worship of them and do not serve them. So again, we see the idea here of worship of the beast and worship of God are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. You can't do both. And then the fifth characteristic of this leader, his administrative tactics, verse 16. And it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. The beast's name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. 
Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. And thus, many heavy metal albums were written. (laughs) This false prophet will require some type of identifying mark um, that is used to separate those who are worshipers of the beast from those who are not worshipers of the beast. This mark will be, it says there, the beast's name or the number of its name. And then it tells us that this mark will be on the right hand or on the forehead. And, and this mark, this identifying thing, will be used to force compliance, to force worship, to force the people to make the image that is being worshipped. And, you know, markings like this, there, there's similar things that have happened throughout history. Um, slaves were, were marked with the names or the number of their master by, through having them tattooed on them. Soldiers in different countries have been tattooed or marked in some way to identify their allegiance to the country or the unit they belong to or who their commander is. And then, of course, in, in, in modern days, people that are in various cults, especially some of the weird sex cults that are out there, they always want to brand people or mark them of some kind as a way to identify allegiance. Uh, the, but this mark here that it's talking about, it's not just a mark of allegiance or worship. Um, It is that, but it's also economic. It specifically points out that people will not be able to buy or sell without it. And so, again, people go, what's the mark of the beast, right? Well, it says it's the number of the beast. It says it's the number of a person. And then it says the number is 666. Right before that, it says this mark is either the beast's name or the number of its name. And so there you go. That's the answer. (laughs) Nobody knows. Nobody knows exactly. Everything is conjecture, guessing, and speculation. Whatever it is, it will be something that represents the beast, something that identifies the beast, and it will be used to identify one's allegiance to him through them being marked with it. Again, over the years, people have been barcodes. That's going to be the mark of the beast. Microchips, subdermal tattoos, biomarkers, implants, and on and on and on. And, and a lot of those things are used today uh, by companies to identify employees. They're used in, in, in different ways to, to um, you know, keep track of people, you know, the chips in the hand and all this type of stuff. And with the global internet and GPS and apps and always connected smart devices, sure, the concept of tracking and identifying and limiting and controlling through technology is a, is a very compelling idea and, and kind of makes sense in a lot of ways. Um, even as far back as the 90s, our own Congress was trying to pass bills that would require injecting a microchip into every newborn. This was back in the 90s when Congress, our Congress was considering this. And sure, people go, that would make so much sense, right? I mean, if people were chipped, you could track criminals, you could track your kids, you could, you know, you could keep track of spending. Um, what a great way to control the population by controlling not just their worship, but their ability to eat, live, and survive. I read a quote from a man in Bulgaria, and he said, you cannot understand. You cannot know that the most terrible instrument of persecution ever devised is an innocent ration card. You cannot buy or sell anything except according to that little card. If they please, you can be starved to death. If they please, you can be disposed and dispossessed of everything you have. You cannot trade, you cannot buy, and you cannot sell without it. So there will be a compelling reason to take this mark during the end times um, because if you want to eat, if you want to live, if you want to pay your bills, if you, if you want to survive, 
you'll have this compelling reason to take it. Now, one of the other questions people say is, can, can we take the mark of the beast today, right? My company wants to chip us. Am I gonna go to hell if I do that? Um, well, I would just encourage you to ask yourself this. Unless you're taking something, <laughs> some mark, that specifically identifies the Antichrist, a global governmental political ruler, and taking that mark is forced by a worldwide religious leader who is leading a one-world government, and you're taking it for purposes of declaring worship and allegiance to the beast. Unless that is what characterizes whatever this mark is, you're not taking the mark of the beast, okay? Um, now, again, you have your own convictions about stuff. You know, I, I don't like people injecting anything into me for any reason. So I'm not telling you to do it or don't do it, but as far as the mark of the beast is concerned, it's very specific. Some ideas on interpreting this mark, it says it's a number of a person and the, or the number of its name. It gives us this very clear 666. It very clearly tells us it's identifying a person, right? It's not identifying a date. It's not identifying the www of websites. It's not anything else. It's a person that this mark identifies. And so some people look at that and they go, well, in the, in the Hebrew alphabet, and, and I think in the Greek alphabet as well, the numbers in those alphabets also had a numerical value assigned to them. And so what they see in the 666 um, is this idea that it's, it's the first, middle, and last name of whoever the Antichrist is. And then so they say it's, it's a way to, to summarize his name. Like we know who JFK is, right? We know who that individual is by the letters of his name. So, or some people go, um, six is the number of letters in each name. So the first, middle, and last name is each gonna have six letters because it's the name of a person. It's the number of his name. Possibly. Uh, some say, well, just as the number seven biblically is kind of like the number of God and represents completeness and totality, what we do see throughout scripture is the number six seems to be the number of man, right? Uh, man was created on the sixth day. Uh, uh, when people were bond slaves, they would work for six years and then be freed on the seventh. Uh, man is commanded to work six days and rest the seventh. And so there's this idea throughout scripture that six is the number of man. And so 666 is just a symbolic way to say that the Antichrist is like the ultimate man, right? Man, man, man. He's the ultimate man, you know, in that sense. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I would not waste a lot of time worrying about it. Um, specifically because if you know Jesus Christ today, you won't be here when this happens, okay? Um, yeah, praise God for that. But again, out of love and compassion, if you do think we're gonna be here when this happens, um, well, he, he says this at the end. He goes, this calls for wisdom. And he says, uh, let the one with understanding calculate the number. I think when he says have wisdom and understanding, what I do think that means is that during the time of tribulation, the people who are here living during the time of tribulation will be able to understand and calculate um, who the Antichrist is, right? It'll be, it'll be obvious is, is what I believe it's referring to there when it says this calls for wisdom and let those who have understanding calculate um, is that, that those who are here on the earth during that time, and we know that there'll be people who get saved during tribulation, um, they'll be able to, to see it and understand what his system is and what it means to be involved with his system and identified with his system. And, it, and it'll be obvious to them in that sense where because they're saved, God will grant them wisdom, so much so that some will take the mark and some will refuse to take the mark. Um, but again, it is very clear that taking the mark at that time means that your name cannot be possibly written in the book of life. 
Um, so, the focus of the false prophet, his authority, his system of worship, his attesting signs, his, his animated statue, his administrative tactics, all of it works towards elevating and adulating and adoring and promoting the Antichrist as God in the flesh, the savior of mankind, the one worthy of worship. He points to the Antichrist just as the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but after spending the last few weeks focusing on these foul, disturbing, monstrous, gross beasts called the Antichrist and the false prophet, um, I feel like I need a spiritual bath. And so, we're gonna close today focusing our eyes on the real, authentic God in the flesh, the real Savior of mankind, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is worthy of worship, the only one worthy of worship now and forevermore, and we're gonna do that in the taking of communion. And so, um, I know that's an abrupt, abrupt shift, but wasn't sure how to get there from here, so. Uh, all of you should have one of the communion cups here in the room. If you're watching online and you don't have your communion emblems yet, I do encourage you to get those now. But for those of you in the room, uh, if you've never seen these cups, there's two little tabs on the front. There's this really thin plastic tab and then a thicker one. If you go ahead and pull back the thin tab first, it's gonna reveal the, the cracker on the top here. You know, communion is, is a time of remembrance. It's a time of remembrance. When Jesus took the bread, um, we read in the Gospels that it says he, he took the bread and he, he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, and we, we observe communion because we want to remember Jesus and what, we, what he did. We want to think about why he did it. You know, during the tribulation period, many on earth are going to be given over to self-exaltation. Many on the earth are going to continue to forget the depth of their own depravity and sin. And they're going to turn to worship the one who represents everything they are and they want to be. The one who is full of pride and indulgence and lack of restraint and denial of accountability and responsibility and full of excess. And then the people during the tribulation time are going to turn to worship this guy because what he's going to tell people is you don't need forgiveness because you're righteous in and of yourself. The devil is trying to get people to believe that today. And this is why we do this. This is why we partake of communion, to remember Jesus to remember what he did for us. What we're seeing during tribulation here in Revelation, all these judgments being poured out on sin, they're not being poured out on those who have been covered by the blood. They're being poured out on those who say, no, I don't want that. I demand to pay my own price for sin. And that is what God's judgments are. He's judging sin. In communion, Jesus wanted us to remember that he's already paid the price for us. He already paid our price. He took the full wrath of God for our sin, my sin, for your sin. He took it upon himself in our place. That through faith in that, in his broken body, the wrath being poured out, his body just being devastated in the, in the scourging and on the cross and all that he went through, that we would never forget that we are forgiven that we are set free from the power of sin and death, that, that we are made safe from his wrath to come, 
that we would never forget that he did it because he loved you so much. And he loved me so much. He, he bled. He suffered. He died that we might be forgiven through our confession of faith on what he did for us on the cross. The Bible tells us that it's by his wounds that we are healed. It's by his sacrifice we are pardoned. And so when we think of the body of Christ that was given for us, laid upon the altar, that our salvation would be secured, wow, praise God. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you for giving yourself on the altar for our sin. Lord, as we already have seen in Revelation, you are the lamb who was slain. You were the sacrifice given that we would be forgiven. And God, we don't deserve that. We know we don't deserve that. But God, you didn't do it because we deserve it. You did it because you love us. And so God, you just then ask, Lord, that we would live lives of obedience, that we would choose obedience to you, God, because of what you did for us, Lord. And, and God, as you remember your body given for us, Lord, may we never forget the great cost that our sin created. And may we live every day, God, in gratitude of that by doing everything we can to obey you, to say no to the sin nature, to say no to those, those sins in our lives which were the very things that caused you to, to, to go through what you went through. Lord, we remember what you did for us. And we remember that because of it, we are saved from the wrath to come. And that as the Holy Spirit works in our lives to point us to you, the one true God who is worthy of praise, we say thank you. Thank you for dying for us, Lord. Let's partake together. If you have the cups in the room, very delicately pull back the thicker tab and that'll reveal, reveal the juice in the cup here for you. You know, that same night when Jesus was instituting communion with his disciples, after the bread, he gave them the cup and he said, take this cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then he repeated, do this in remembrance of me. You see, because it wasn't just the sacrifice on the altar. That blood was then collected and that blood went to the mercy seat and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat. The payment paid for sin. And when Jesus' body went to that altar and was laid on that altar and was ravaged for us, it was his blood that was shed that washed us clean. It was his shed blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat of God that paid the price for our sin once and for all, forever. Past, present, future. You're forgiven. You were forgiven yesterday. You were forgiven today. You will be forgiven tomorrow. Hallelujah. Yes, we stumble. Yes, we fall. Why do we need to remember the blood? Because when we fall down, the deceiver and the liar jumps right into our head and says, what are you doing? How dare you call yourself a Christian? Look at what you just did. Look at what you just said. But as a Christian who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, 
we get to say no. I messed up. But God already knew that was going to happen. And 2,000 years ago, he shed his blood to pay the price for that sin. And I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I am forgiven. I am saved. And the devil just gets mad and goes away and gets ready to come back next time. And this is why we do this over and over to remember to never forget the price that was paid for us, that he shed his blood permanently for all of us. That in these moments we remember that we were stained by sin and there was nothing we could do to wash it away in ourselves. There was no good works we could do because every time we did a good work, we did 10 bad works. We were just fallen people. But he's the one that atoned for our sin and he's the one that washed us clean that the stain of sin in our lives would be purged forever. That is the truth. It's not that we are righteous people in no need of a savior. No, it's really that we are wicked people desperately in need of a savior. And we have one. And he died for us. And now we walk in the victory of that. We walk in the freedom of that. Praise God. And how do we live in response to what he's done for us? Same way we do with the bread, in gratitude and thanks. God, I want to live to just proclaim your glory. I want to share your name with all who would hear it. I want to tell everybody about you because you saved me. If you saved me, I know you could save everyone. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful, God, for your shed blood on the cross. We're so grateful, Lord, that your spirit continually points us back to remember these things, Lord, as we are gathered here as the body of Christ and your spirit is among us, pointing us to you. God, we know that because we have been washed clean by your shed blood, we are renewed and restored and redeemed. We are clothed with your robes of righteousness. And because of that, we worship you and you alone. Jesus, we know you are God Almighty the only Redeemer, the only Savior, the only Messiah, the only Lamb of God who was slain. There is none other and there will never be another. We thank you, God, for our salvation. Help us, Lord, to walk in all that that means. Let's partake together. Well, I pray that God will bless your life abundantly. That as you go about your days and you just seek him every day. That you listen for his voice as, as Elder Rick was telling us. To hear him speak to you and encourage you and console you and guide you and direct you. That we learn to listen to the one who purchased our lives by his own blood. That we learn to listen to, to what he wants us to do and to live how he wants us to be. That we would be everything he's created us to be. To be people who shine the glory of God into a world that so desperately needs it. And yes, that even means going into a world that says we don't need him and still telling them about it with love, with kindness, with compassion, but with confidence and boldness. Because as we've been studying, we know that the clock is ticking on mankind. The end is coming quickly. And we're seeing pictures of the culmination of, of the groundwork that Satan is already laying now. And we are called as God's people to redeem the time, for it is short. I pray God's Spirit would fill every single one of you.
with a zeal to, to tell people about Jesus. This track thing we're doing now, we're, we're providing the tracks for you. Nobody could say, I can't afford the tracks. Yes, you can, because they're free. <laughs> Take them, hand them out. Find a way to share your faith with people and trust that the God who redeemed your soul is gonna fill you in that moment and, and help you say the right thing and, and, and to just show the love of Christ because that's what we are about, amen? All right, let's worship, guys. God bless you.